and you want to maintain the percentage of intensity that you have in your training, although the nature of your intense workouts changes a bit. That Triathlon Show 190. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I discuss tapering and peaking for triathlon in another solo episode where I dive deep into the science, but also acknowledging right here from the start that this is more of an art than a science, to be honest. There's so much knowledge gaps here that we don't know, but there are things that we do know, and that's what we'll discuss as well. So you'll learn things like how much of a performance improvement you can expect from tapering, how long the ideal taper should be, how your training should change in terms of volume, intensity, and training frequency, and uh, as I said, what we know from science and where we need to start to go to the art side of things. And I'll also talk about how to deal with uh, multiple races, back-to-back races or races that are within just a few weeks of each other. To make things very practical, I'll also give you an example race week training schedule. But first, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They make electrolyte products that ensure you can keep performing and stay off cramps even in long races and hot races. You don't want to go into a half or full distance race without having a plan for how to replace your electrolytes. And something that I talked about uh, a week or so ago is uh, how I combine electrolytes and carbohydrate. And I separate the two so I get my electrolytes from precision hydration drinks and they have no carbs in them. And then I get my carbs from gels and sometimes bars as well. And there are several advantages of doing this. I think that it makes it very easy to to kind of calculate how much and stay on top of how much carbs I consume and how much electrolyte. And it also makes it uh, very easy on the stomach when you don't have to mix the carbs and the electrolytes. So I use isotonic gels usually to not even have to drink anything because I usually fill all my bottles with precision hydration. I don't have any water bottles with me uh, on my runs or in my races. So that's how I do it. And since you are a listener of the show, you can get your first box of precision hydration product for free on precisionhydration.com when you use the discount code Show. All one word, all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Ventum. They have a new revolutionary budget-friendly Ventum C mechanical bike out on the market that uses the same superbike frame of their flagship model Ventum 1. This is a patented frame design that has no down tube, no seat stays. It has an integrated water bottle of 1.4 liters in the top tube. And the Ventum Z mechanical costs only $3,500 with Vision Team 30 wheels included. For just a frame set, you'd pay just $2,850. 
and check it out on ventumracing.com where you can learn more about how you can also trade in your old bike and get 110% of the value towards the purchase of a new Ventum bike and they have flexible payment plans as well. But let's dive into the topic of tapering and peaking for triathlon. So before we get into the meat and potatoes here, I want to talk a little bit about my sources for this information. The I used a lot of sources, but three main ones that I'll uh, read out here and the rest I will just link in the show notes and kind of mention as I go along. But the main ones are publications called Tapering for Triathlon Competition by Inigo Muyika, who is one of the greatest researchers I know in endurance sports. I tried to have him on the show, but he kindly replied that he's too busy, unfortunately. But uh, he's a fantastic researcher, so anything he does is quality. The second is uh, called a publication called Effects of Tapering on Performance, a Meta-Analysis by Bosque and colleagues, uh, that is from 2007. The Muyika paper that I first mentioned is from 2011. But the meta-analysis uh, kind of pooled all the available taper research and is very, very valuable for that reason. And finally, we have a publication called Peaking for Optimal Performance, Research Limitations and Future Directions by Pine and colleagues in the Journal of Sports Scientists Journal of Sports Sciences in 2009. So that's, uh, and those will be linked to in the show notes, uh, of course. Tapering. Most of you will know that uh, the taper is uh, the last period before your race where you reduce your training load and that allows you to reach peak performance on race day because you have a reduced physiological stress and a reduced psychological stress as well. As training load decreases after a period of higher training load, that will get uh, you to shed fatigue that you have accumulated. And when fatigue decreases, you allow your fitness to shine through. That is uh, what uh, is referred to as form, usually. You are race ready. And uh, how much does this matter, really? Well, the... Scientific uh, evidence points to an improvement of 2 to 3% from tapering, but there is a pretty large range with the results varying from 0.5% all the way up to 8%. But uh, 2 to 3% seems to be the average and where it lands usually. So that's what you can you can count on, which is it, it isn't huge, but uh, it's definitely worth doing if you can get a 2 to 3% improvement. But I have to say personally that I was surprised that it's only 2 to 3%. I would have expected uh, it to be a bit higher, like in the 5 five to 8% region, really. But so, so that is a surprise to me, at least. The reasons for this uh, improved performance is that VO2 max can actually increase during taper, which is possibly a result of increased blood volume and red blood cell production. And uh, running and swimming economy both tend to increase due to uh, either biomechanical or neurological factors or both. 
And uh, another important uh, part of this is that your glycogen stores can increase by as much as 15%, which is very significant considering that they are kind of limited uh, for athletes and uh, maintaining endurance for longer definitely becomes much more effective with those glycogen stores at uh, higher levels. Basically for even for an Olympic distance, uh, yeah, for Olympic distances and longer than that, those glycogen stores are very, very important. But there is a but, and uh, that is individual variation. Uh, tapering is more of an art than a science. It's, uh, there's no question about that. The, there are a lot of knowledge gaps in the science. So this is where an example of where having a coach really becomes invaluable. The individual variation comes from various aspects like uh, variations in how fast you recover and how fast you adapt to time zone changes and recover from travel if you're traveling to your race. There are individual variations in how much intensity you need during taper. For example, at a recent conference that I attended here in uh, Portugal, uh, where Malcolm Brown was keynoting, he mentioned Vicky Holland and Non Stanford as examples. And I'm not quite sure actually who was the one who wanted to really keep both the volume and intensity up almost to the same level as previously in the taper and uh, the other girl wanted to greatly reduce and and rest a lot in during taper but and especially get that intensity down quite a bit so so there are th this is just one example to show you and they placed third and fourth in uh, in the 2016 olympics in uh, in rio and also even if you have uh, very similar characteristics compared to another athletes how much the two of you train causes individual variations in the taper strategy to appear so for example if you train eight to ten hours per week you most likely don't require a really big adjustment to your overall volume since it is quite low compared to your body who trains uh, 16 to 20 hours per week so so there are a lot of things that makes this uh, a very complex uh, complex piece of the triathlon puzzle that uh, needs to take the individual into account and uh, and just trial and error it's a lot of trial and error to be honest let's uh, discuss the types of tapers that uh, exist and that have been defined there's uh, three of them or four of them depending on how you count First we have a linear taper and that is uh, an example would be that if you have a two week taper you drop the the vo training volume by for example 20% uh, two weeks before your race and then by 20% more uh, in uh, the final week in the lead up to the race. So you drop it in, in steps and that makes it linear. Then an even simpler version is the step taper. So in that case, you would reduce the training load in one single step two weeks out if we have the same taper duration. And, and you maintain that low training load for the entire taper time. And uh, there is evidence suggest that this is the least effective taper model. Then we have the exponential taper and we have two versions of this uh, with slow or fast decay. And uh, this means that you gradually reduce uh, training volume and it gets progressively less, uh, but it's not just 
one or a few steps in uh, in reduction, but it happens gradually. The fast and slow decay refer to how quickly you reduce volume in the beginning. With a fast decay, you reduce more at the very beginning when you start your taper. And with a slow, it is more gradual. It looks more like linear than the fast decay. So, so that is kind of the difference. And the meta-analysis that I, that I mentioned, it grouped the linear and exponential tapers together and called that group progressive tapers and compared it with the step tapers uh, in a two-group comparison. And the progressive tapers were more effective than the step taper. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of how to train during your taper and how to alter that training load, which is, uh, as I just mentioned in the definition of taper, you need to alter the training load, reduce the training load to bring out peak performance and freshness. And you do that by altering the volume of your training, the frequency of your training, the intensity of your training, and the duration of your taper. So those are the variables that you can play with. And first, if we discuss volume, the performance improvements that can be seen as a result of tapering are highly sensitive to how much you reduce training volume. And the meta-analysis, for example, found that maximal performance gains are found if you reduce your training volume by 41 to 60 percent compared to your pre-taper training volume. So that's a, a significant amount and that's also a great uh, great guideline that, that gives you an idea, a place to start when it comes to designing your own taper. What about frequency? Does that play a role? Because obviously you can have the same volume with five sessions per week or with ten sessions per week. But in the former case, your workouts would be twice as long as in the, in the latter. So can your taper be more effective if you reduce the frequency of your, of your workouts in the taper phase? Is one of the research questions that uh, studies have tried to, to answer. And the answer seems to be no. It is not beneficial to reduce frequency. But there is the caveat here that frequency interacts with other variables, uh, especially training volume. So it's difficult to isolate the effect of training frequency. And uh, you could, there are some uh, recommendations that uh, say that uh, you can slightly reduce frequency, but maintain 80% or more of your pre-taper training frequency. So if you trained 10 times per week before taper, then keep at least eight workouts per week in your taper phase. Intensity, when that is investigated, the results of studies indicate that that should not be reduced. Uh, That is something that you should definitely maintain. What changes is how you do your intensity. For example, let's say that you before your workout you would do a 10 times 400 meters on the track with a 45 second recovery well the same workout not the same workout but the same kind of workout in the taper could look like um let's say seven times 300 with uh, one minute 15 second recoveries or something like that so you you make it much less taxing but you still include that intensity that uh, that time under tension as they would say in the in the resistance training world or 
time at intensity as we can see in the endurance training world so so you need to change your workouts but you definitely should not reduce the intensity what will change is how intense the workouts feel because obviously that 10 times 400 with 45 seconds rest will feel a lot harder than uh, 7 times 300 at uh, with uh, with 1 minute 15 seconds rest so to be clear, yes, you do reduce intensity, but not as a percentage of your total training volume. Consider that if your volume drops to 41 to 60% of what it was before taper, then obviously your intensity volume will reduce as well, but the percentage of intensity will not be reduced in taper. And in some cases, it may even be beneficial to slightly increase it, although we don't really have scientific evidence for that. Finally, the duration of the taper, that's uh, together with the volume, the duration and intensity as well. The duration is something that we have some good data on from scientific research. And a duration of 8 to 14 days seems to be a good sweet spot, the borderline between the positive influence of shedding fatigue and getting to form and uh, the negative influence of detraining if you reduce training for training load for too low so so that's uh, 8 to 14 days is a great starting place again but remember the individual variation there can be great results from tapers that are even just a few days for like a sprint distance race or up to 4 weeks for a longer race like an ironman race the variability here is really really big there, there's some interesting work as well, like with uh, with modeling, mathematical modeling, like the kind that you would see in, in training peaks when, for example, if you look at your performance management chart, but uh, that, that have been done on tapering specifically. And the training performed immediately before the taper, in the pre-taper period, influences the optimal duration, which is logical, of course. But if you have a high training volume or intensity before taper then that you that would require you to have a longer taper as well so take that into account when you when you decide on your uh, on your taper duration so if you want to have a look at all of these results in detail uh, the p values the effect sizes and uh, the comparisons between groups you should go and check out that meta-analysis by uh, Bosque and colleagues that I mentioned. And again, I'll link to it in the show notes and the, in the episode description. So if we go a bit deeper and discuss what we know about tapering in, within the different disciplines, then basically your training intensity should be maintained whatever sport it is uh, whether it's swimming biking and running all taper studies have shown that intensity should be maintained but how much the volume should change that is uh, kind of different between the swimming and the biking and the running uh, with uh, the swim that 41 to 60 percent that i mentioned has been shown to be optimal but uh, with the bike and run, the range is a bit uh, wider with 21 to 60%. Overall volume has still been shown to be in that 41 to 60% range, uh, but you have a bit more leeway there with the bike and the run to reduce less if you 
should desire and if that's something that works for you. Well, obviously you should always do what works for you anyway, but uh, but there's kind of a difference there. However, I should say here that uh, these studies have often been done in elite or sub-elite athletes, so, so it is questionable whether whether you would need a larger taper reduction in swimming volume compared to biking and running, given that, at least in my experience, most age groupers uh, don't train uh, big volumes of swimming, but they may train big volumes of running and biking. So so I, I'm not sure, to be honest, that these results apply to you. I, I would hesitate to say that unless you're swimming, if you're swimming 20 kilometers per week or more, then I can definitely see that a bigger volume of, uh, or reduction in volume would be needed in the swim. But other than that, I, I think that for the swimming, you can, you don't need to, to decrease that by any more than biking and running. And the way that it's uh, often done is that actually running is what is reduced more. And I haven't found any uh, science backing this up. But this is something that that you often hear coaches talk about, and uh, and you can experience yourself if you've ever done a uh, trained for a for a marathon or something. That the run is really really taxing, and it takes long to recover from with all the impact. So there's a lot of advice out there that uh, the run is where you want to uh, start reducing volume the earliest, and you may want to reduce volume the most. So this is anecdotal evidence, mind you. But I think it's important to uh, to consider, and I think it's uh, there probably is uh, is some truth to it that that running is actually for triathletes, for many triathletes, what you should decrease the most. And that's uh, in most cases. It depends on the athlete, but in most cases, that's what I tend to do as well when I when I design training programs and uh, and coach my athletes. And I, I already mentioned about the training intensity, how that changes with uh, you would reduce the absolute amount of intensity. So for example, those 400 meter intervals becomes 300 or 200 meter intervals. The recoveries become longer. So the actual sessions may not be too hard, but you still accumulate some time at intensity. But another question that uh, we could ask is... Uh, what kind of intensity should we be doing? In many training plans that you may see, the taper period has uh, race pace intensity in it. But there is one specific study on this topic that compared tapering with race pace as the quality workouts with VO2 max intervals as the quality workouts. And they had the participants do a 10k run, both before the training, they, they had a block of training and then a taper and then another 10k run and then they try to see how these runners improved in their 10k on different taper protocols and they found that uh, whether they did vo2 max type intensity or uh, 10k race pace type intervals in their taper they improved uh, the same amount basically in the two groups and that's uh, something that uh, I would advise that you can experiment with, see what works best for you, especially for Ironman athletes, as the goal race intensity is so low. I don't really think that uh, that necessarily hits uh, uh, hits all your physiological systems that you want to keep revved up to some extent and keep going and keep uh, keep fresh. Uh, keep... So so that's uh, Ironman is. Uh, 
is a distance where it could be worth doing those faster intervals in the taper. Also, because if you do those race pace intervals, it makes no sense to do one minute at Ironman effort, but it does make sense to do one minute at VO2 max intensity, which uh, could make for an overall less taxing taper because your training volume is reduced, can be reduced more. And one more thing that I want to mention about the training aspect of taper is actually not about training in the taper itself, but in the period just before the taper. And this is, uh, it kind of refers to that uh, thing that I mentioned about how theoretical modeling has shown that an overload uh, just before, a high overload just before the taper results in higher performance gains. Uh, but it affects how you how long your taper should be and uh, how much you need to reduce training load. Well, I found one experimental study that uh, tried to validate that overload concept before the taper. And it uh, sort of uh, proved it, but it also showed that there is a very, very fine line. So they had a, tw- a group of uh, a control group of 12 people and an overload group of 22 people where and uh, where they tried to really, really do a big training overload in the second group and the control group had more of a kept the training to the same level as it already had been, a stable level that all the participants had become accustomed to as part of the study. And uh, it turned out that in the overload group, half of them ended up in a state that uh, the authors defined as functional overreaching. So not non-functional, but functional. But they did see decreased performance uh, and high perceived fatigue in that overload phase. In the performance testing that uh, all of the athletes did uh, after and within the taper, because the taper was four weeks, so they did performance testing several times within, within that taper, the half of uh, the athletes uh, in uh, that overload group, the ones that had not reached functional overreaching so they did not have a decreased performance within that overload stage and they did not have uh, extremely high perceived fatigue they did the best in those performance tests so better than the functional overreaching overload group and better than the control group and also a few of the functionally overreached athletes they uh, they got ill at some points not they missed a few days here and there it was nothing serious but still they did. So this just, I want to bring this up as an example that an overload period just before the taper can work. And I'll talk about this a bit later when it comes to to dealing with uh, multiple races, but it needs to be very, very individualized to you and what you can handle. But then the one thing that goes against the theoretical modeling is that even in this group of athletes that uh, performed well after the overload training, their best performances occurred in the first two weeks of the taper. So they didn't need necessarily a longer taper uh, to to reach peak performance as the modeling work that, uh, that I referenced would have, would have indicated. So that's, uh, that's about it for the training. Before I... Uh, talk about my example training week taper week or race week i should say Uh, i want to touch on the uncertainty and the gap of knowledge here again this is definitely more an art than a science and one uh, ironically scientific study 
that uh, that I read back to this app. It's called The Road to Gold, training at peaking characteristics in the year prior to a gold medal endurance performance. And they it says a year prior, but they also dug deep into what the actual taper before that gold medal looked like. And the population here, it was 11 elite cross-country skiers and biathletes, 4 male, 7 female, and uh, they all won either world championship or an Olympic gold medal, and they reported their year leading up to that. The tapering phase that they dug deep in was the 14 days before that gold medal. And when comparing those 14 days with the four weeks before this two-week taper, in the first week of taper, the training volume only decreased by 4%, and that was a non-significant decrease, by the way, uh, compared to the pre-taper phase. And in the second week, the decrease was 15%, and again, non-significant increase. So uh, this is much, much less than uh, what uh, the scientific evidence suggests. And, uh, and these athletes went on to win gold or Olympic medals. And in fact, four of the 11 athletes actually increased their training volume in the last seven days. So some of the world's best endurance athletes are not following these practices, which just goes to show how much uh, variability there is here. And... Uh, but then again, it should be said that it, it is difficult to generalize this to age group athletes uh, because we are quite different from elite athletes and have a different, different needs, training needs and recovery needs. Plus, there is the slight complication that uh, these cross-country skiing and biathlon athletes, they are racing in World Cup competitions on most weekends anyways uh, before big championships Maybe well, they actually reduce their the amount that they race, but they do have a lot of races, so it's not the exact same situation as tapering for one big A race. But let's now quickly talk about the race week example, just to give you an idea of what the taper might look like. And this is an athlete that I coach that recently completed his first Olympic distance race of the year. So the last week before the race consisted of, on Monday, a 45-minute recovery run, zone 1 or low zone 2, and a 45-50-minute swim, 2k, which is pretty short for this uh, athlete. He's used to 3 to 3.5k swims. And uh, this swim had had quite a bit of intensity with 50 and 150 meter repeats. It also had race-specific things like uh, sighting and deck-ups and... It was to be done in a wetsuit if possible, even though it was a pool swim. The Tuesday was a brick workout with intensity. On the bike, there was, uh, after the warm-up, there was a zone-free ramp and there was some high-cadence work. And uh, then the main set was uh, eight times one minute at threshold intensity, roughly. So not a whole lot, but uh, it was still intensity. And the entire bike was one hour long. And then after that followed a 15-minute brick run with the first five with the first five minutes being at Olympic distance race effort. Wednesday was a recovery ride of uh, 45 minutes. And uh, 
then there was a swim and this was uh, basically the same swim as on Monday but a shorter version so it took half an hour and it was only 1400 meters and it had 15s and 100s instead of 50s and 150s and fewer of them it still had sighting and deck ups and was to be done in a wetsuit so the same swim but a version that indicates that we're coming close to race day first day was just a run with uh, six one minute repeats at uh, threshold effort or or olympic distance race effort so this definitely went to the more the race pace direction than vo2 max direction uh, referring back to what we talked about where where the two different versions of intensity were compared so that was a f- just a 30 minute run because the main set was so short and by the way the recoveries between one minute repeats was two minutes long so this makes this workout very very easy and friday was a rest day and a travel day saturday was uh, had a an open water swim of 15 minutes to get used to swimming at the venue and it had some some light intensity some light builds and uh, just uh, a few 25 minutes 25 meter sprints i should say and then there was just a gear check a 15 20 minute uh, bike ride uh, easy spin followed by a five minute easy brick run just easy to get the blood flowing and be prepared for tomorrow's race so that was uh, basically it and uh, this is for an athlete that is used to train around 8 to 10 hours per week. So the entire volume here, I don't have it uh, written down here, but it looks like it could be around about, let's say, 5 to 6 hours. Uh, yeah, probably something like probably something like five, 5 and something. That's what I would say. So, so that gives you an example of uh, what the taper week might look like and definitely reduced volume but uh, still maintain intensity but the intense workouts are not very hard because the, the time at intensity is, uh, is lower and there's longer recovery between the intervals. One specific piece of advice that I want to give you is that if you're a Training Peaks user, in your post-race analysis, definitely go and check what your CTL and TSB values were on race day and try and try to correlate those with if you have a good or a bad race. Like, do you seem to have good races on a TSB of 5 or do you need 15? Or do you need 25? If it's an Ironman, you might need 25 of TSB to, to have a good race. So, so definitely uh, be as particular analyzing your taper and what you had as, uh, as you are analyzing the race itself. If, and if you don't have a coach, then you, I highly recommend that you do this yourself. Go and check out episode 39 uh, to learn more about that. And you need Training Peaks Premium, but it's definitely worth the investment. Okay, so let's talk a bit about what to do when you have multiple races in a short time span. This is where science really is lacking because most taper studies investigate a big A race or a test performance and everything is centered around that one day. But in the real world, you may have a number of races in a short time frame. And how do you deal with that? 
Well, first of all, again, this is where the art side of coaching and individual variation are the factors to weigh heavily and uh, having a coach is invaluable here and doing a proper analysis if you are self-coached and really paying attention, investing time in getting to know yourself and how you respond. There is one study that uh, I think is pretty interesting, so I'm going to tell you a bit more about it here. It's called Short-Term Performance Peaking in an Elite Cross-Country Mountain Biker, and it's by Bent Rönnestad, so it's another great Norwegian endurance study. They do a ton of those, especially in polarized training, but that Olympic gold medal study is also Norwegian, as you probably guessed already. Anyway, this uh, case study investigates how having a seven-day overload period uh, of really high-intensity training daily, followed by a five-day taper, uh, that was a step taper, so they brought it right back down to a much lower level. And uh, this athlete had had a race one week, and then uh, we don't really know how he was training the week after the race, but then the following week, so on day seven or day eight after the race, he started with that daily high-intensity interval training. And then the week after that, he started with his taper. They did all sorts of baseline measurements and they measured that in the overload week. And they also measured it in the taper weeks. These were like muscle activation and VO2 max and power output at certain sub-maximal blood lactate concentrations, a number of things. And uh, the results, well, the pre-taper and pre-overload results were that uh, in that first race, that uh, after which this study started, he finished uh, 11th in the junior class of the UCI World Cup. Uh, so that was uh, before the study started. And then there was one week of, of we don't really know what he did there but he was training then the seven day overload period started and uh, as i said one daily high intensity interval training session and uh, those uh, se- sessions consisted of three sets of 9.5 minutes uh, of 30 second work intervals with uh, 15 second recovery and between those sets of 9.5 minutes he had three minutes of recovery in between sets And uh, the aim was to achieve the highest possible average power across all three sets. In addition to these high-intensity interval sessions, he had four easy uh, sessions of zone one riding of uh, one to one and a half hours, roughly. And uh, then during the five-day taper uh, after that overload period, the training volume was reduced by 78% compared to the overload period. So that is a whole lot. And uh, they showed that on day four of the taper, he felt uh, really good. And a lot of the measurements were already equal or better than before. And then two days later, that fourth day was the last test day. But two days later, he had a race and his legs felt even better and he achieved his largest winning gap of the season in the National Cup. So 
he was just on fire that day. So so this is an in- interesting example of how you can use have one week of well we don't really know again what he did but uh, nothing too intense I guess or too hard the week after the race but then one week of really heavy overload and then one very sharp taper and use that to have a great uh, performance three weeks after the first race. So that is one example of what you can maybe try but again as I said already many times today maybe too many this is highly individual and the art of coaching weighs heavily here in tapering as well as peaking for multiple races so definitely you and your coach need to to give this some serious thought when you have uh, when you have multiple races and uh, and talk through what may work best for you and your uh, athletic characteristics and obviously find out through trial and error what works for you and when you find that then you're golden and you just repeat that so the final point i want to make is uh, additional considerations outside of training and the main ones are recovery, nutrition and hydration, and travel. Very briefly, the most important recovery tool that you have, and it's free, is sleep. Less training in the taper period means more time to sleep, so definitely make sure that you use that time, and sleep can have tremendous performance benefits, probably more than 2-3% to than, uh, of the taper, although I don't remember off the top of my head. Way down the list after more sleep, more sleep and more sleep comes things like wearing compression garments to get rid of any soreness and getting massages. Just don't get a massage the day before the race. For hydration, just make sure that you stay hydrated as normal. The color of your urine is a good enough marker of that. The day before the race, especially if it's a long race, you want to make sure that you preload with electrolytes. And uh, I highly recommend precision hydration for this. Go and listen to my interview with Andy Blow in episode 49 to learn more about this. For nutrition, bear in mind that uh, as your amount of exercise is reduced, you also need to reduce your caloric intake to stay in energy balance and not gain excess weight. But also, at least the day before the race, if not days before the race, make sure that a large proportion of your energy intake is from carbs to make sure that your glycogen stores are topped off. As I mentioned, that is one of the factors that ensure that tapers work. So uh, I don't... Science has proven now that the old school carb loading where you first go in a carb depletion phase and then a pretty long carb loading after that of four days or so, that's not necessary. But uh, two days, depending on the race that you do, if it's an Ironman, I would recommend two days. If it's an Olympic or sprint, then one day of carb loading is enough. Uh, so, but, but anyway, you... What If it's one day or two day, that day or those days need to be a large, very large proportion of your energy intake should be from carbs. Finally, travel fatigue and jet lag. If you travel to your race, then you can have both of those. Uh, fatigue, Travel fatigue can come even if you're not uh, changing time zones. And, uh, but that usually lasts for only a day or not much more than that anyway. But if you are crossing a lot of time zones, the effects may be a lot longer lasting and more difficult. So 
this episode is not the right one to go into how to deal with that but just make sure that these travel fatigue and jet lag issues are things that you take into consideration when you plan your taper but to summarize here really quickly and simply what you want to do in your taper is definitely decrease volume quite a bit although it is individual you want to maintain or just slightly slightly decrease frequency of workouts and you want to maintain the percentage of intensity that you have in your training although the nature of your intense workouts changes a bit the duration of the taper science has found that 8 to 14 days is ideal and anecdotal evidence usually supports that but again find out what works best for you the shape of the taper uh, an exponential decay fast taper is uh, potentially the best one which means that you reduce quite a bit let's say two weeks out and then you gradually reduce more and more and more uh, but uh, it gets less compared to the biggest decrease is at the beginning of that taper period So I hope that this episode will be the best possible starting point you can get really in uh, planning out your taper. It's pretty exhaustive in what we know about tapers really. I went deep here in researching. But uh, as I've said, there are a lot of knowledge gaps when it comes to tapering and the art of coaching trumps the science here and individuality is the key word. So as I mentioned, when you analyze your races, whether they are successful or unsuccessful, pay as much attention to the taper as to the races themselves. And this will allow you to hone in on what a successful taper recipe looks like for you. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. Any questions and comments about this topic leave them on that show notes page and i will get right back to you and while you're there make sure that you sign up for the newsletter to get weekly insights from the podcast that i released i do some additional key takeaways from the episodes in those newsletters and of course it makes sure that you never miss another episode you'll get reminded that they are out in next episode, I'll do another solo episode. I got uh, pretty motivated to do this because this was fun. And uh, the next one will be on Seiler's hierarchy of endurance training needs. Si Steven Seiler is uh, one of my favorite researchers in the world. I tried to get him on the show, haven't succeeded yet. So now I'm just going to, uh, to try to uh, distill some of his uh, knowledge and research and teachings into a simple to under easy to understand podcast episode and this one will be the hierarchy of endurance training needs what are the priorities what is most important what is not important and i can already tease a little bit that tapering is at the very top of the pyramid which makes it the least important of all the aspects i think there are eight layers to that pyramid that we'll talk about and tapering is the least important of those so uh, stay tuned for next episode to learn what the other seven are Thank you to Ventum for sponsoring this episode. You can check out all of their bikes on VentumRacing.com. All the models from the flagship Ventum 1 to the new Ventum Z Mechanical have a radical design with no down tube and no seat stays. And they have an integrated water bottle to make it an aerodynamic speed machine. 
If you haven't already, make sure that you go and listen to my interview with Ventum co-founder Jimmy Sears in episode 115 on bike maintenance. That's definitely something that you have to know. And check out their bikes on VentumRacing.com. Thank you also to Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode. Remember to take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and use the discount code DEATHTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, to get your first box for free. If you haven't seen my blog posts on the Precision Hydration blog called Hydration Advice, you should check them out. One is uh, on using training peaks, which uh, we mentioned a bit on this episode, to make smart use of data-driven training. And uh, that is an important distinction because you can sit and look at your training peaks charts all day and uh, get fatter, not fitter, but uh, you need to make smart use of them to make it worth your while. So check out that blog post. And uh, funnily enough, the other blog post is on optimal taper strategies, but you don't need to read that because now you've listened to this episode. This includes all the knowledge from that blog post, plus I've uh, updated my knowledge when researching this episode, so this is even more exhaustive and comprehensive. Anyway, check out Precision Hydration and get those electrolytes products on precisionhydration.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.